Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. I'm delighted today to have Dave Hyatt, who's a 25-year Sandler veteran. He's works now with Home Office at Sandler headquarters, and he specializes in the Organizational Excellence Program. Dave, could you give a one-minute overview of how you got to where you are and your experience of working with Sandler over that um, quarter of a century? Makes it sound like I'm old. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> so I spent 10 years as a, uh, a local trainer running and handling my own office. And home office recruited me to come in and help coach some of the other uh, training centers and to uh, start delivering some of what we call the corporate or global accounts. I've been doing that regularly now for the last oh, 12, 15 years, something like that. And as we did that, I would do special projects. And one of the special projects that was given to me was this organizational excellence. Absolutely, to me, it was the missing link. So my passion is behind uh, growing that program so that uh, our trainers can take that to their clients and dramatically, dramatically improve the organizations. Well, this is really interesting because a lot of the work that I've been doing over the years has kind of led me into this organizational excellence or OE arena. And one of the lessons that I learned very early in my Sandler franchise is that small businesses stay small because the owner keeps them that way. And this program is very liberating because I've certainly seen the massive transition since Dave Matson took over without wanting to sound like a creepy swat. The difference between Sandler 10 years ago and Sandler today, it's unrecognizable. We really feel like a business rather than some mum and pop outfit in backwater Baltimore. Now we feel like the world's global leader. And it seems that a lot of it has come out of applying the lessons and the systems and processes of organizational excellence. So do you mind taking us through a quick potted history of the journey that Sandler itself has gone through? as an example of how we eat our own dog food. Well, speaking of dog foods, funny you would mention that because <laughs> there was a dog food company called Imes Dog Food out of Dayton, Ohio, many, many, many years ago that was recognized multiple, multiple times as an excellent organization. And uh, the CEO of that company, owner of that company, and another gentleman named Bill Matthews got together and sort of documented what made that organization excellent. And in that process, he created a little program he called WOW, which Mr. Matson, as you know, our owner, went through it multiple times. It so impressed him to really get him focused, to get him doing the things he needed to do, that uh, he actually bought the intellectual rights and property to use the core things that uh, Bill had come up with. And sort of that's what he sort of turned over to me to say, hey, let's create our Sandler version of this program. Now, here's what's interesting about the program. It basically takes the kinds of things that most entrepreneurs can go out and find on their own individual one-on-one seminar kinds of things. And what it's done is we've taken it and in our Sandler model, right, we've taken it and we've put all the pieces and parts together in what we call our 24 steps, six P's, put it all together in one spot, giving it a process and reinforcement. And that's sort of where the magic has come in. Absolutely. I mean, I've been pulling stuff together for the last 15 years, and it's a huge relief to have it in one place. So tell me this then, what are the classic blind spots that you see in businesses that cause them to limit their growth? hold them back, prevent them from achieving this success that they have the potential to achieve. But for some reason or another, they seem to get in their own way. Well, I'm going to give you what my personal 25 years of talking to entrepreneurs and business owners, the number one thing from my perspective has been really not tying their personal goals to their corporate goals in a very clear, precise way. The next blind spot I think they have is they don't really build a culture of accountability. So many entrepreneurs, it's the family-run business kind of thing, or they, people feel like family because it's a, typically a smaller organization as it's getting started. And as it grows, they tend to keep that because you were here in the beginning, don't worry about accountability. 
And so they have this blind spot, if you will, when it comes to accountability. I think another, another key is not really planning organizational change initiatives effectively. They just assume that everyone will be on board and they don't really understand and realize <laughs> that not everyone's going to be on board. <laughs> I suspect a few of them had the scales ripped from their eyes on that one. <laughs> yes, they have. And I think finally, the last one I think is when they don't really share the vision with those tasks to implement it, the vision of the company. Where's this company going? Where are we going to be five, 10 years from now? They don't really share that. They know where they want to go with it in some general form, but they don't really clarify it and then share it with those tasked with implementing it. It's really interesting. I mean, I'm always teaching my clients to write stuff down. And there's a proverb, the weakest ink is stronger than the strongest memory. And the thing I see so often is that people keep repeating the same mistake day in, day out, year in, year out. And then they wonder why their head hurts when they keep beating it against the same piece of wall. So one of the things that's really struck me about applying organizational excellence is the whole piece around planning and how critical that is before you start doing anything else. So do you mind talking us through the planning process in broad terms? Well, absolutely. Planning is the first P of our six P's in this process. Now, of the 24 steps, 10 of them are in the planning P, simply because that's how important planning is. And we've all heard the adage about prior planning prevents poor performance or some version of that. But (laughs) but step one in planning is to make sure you've got your personal vision developed so that you are crystal clear on where you want your life to take you, where you want to wake up X number of years from now. Sorry to interrupt. That's really interesting because where you want you to take your life is really interesting because what I'm finding increasingly is that any form of extrinsic motivation generally doesn't work. You might get a a short-term boost, and it's that intrinsic piece And it's about ownership and a sense of control over your own destiny. So can you just elaborate a little bit more around that piece? Because I think it's essential if anyone wants to grow a successful business that will sustain. I think so many people want to grow a successful business, right? That's what they want to do. However, what we find is that they really haven't clarified what a successful business is and why they want it. They just know they want a successful business. But that intrinsic, as you call it, motivation, they haven't really defined why they're going to get up and do it other than some general, I want to be successful. I want my business to be successful. And that causes you to just simply put out fires, run in circles, take any little success and say, okay, I'm getting there. And if you don't know where you want to end up, I guess that's an okay version, but it certainly stresses you out and makes you work harder than you need to. But when you really clarify that personal vision, And then tie that in with step two, which is what's your organizational vision? If this is where I want to be, how is my company going to get me there? What do we as a company have to be in the future so that I can have, do, and be what I want to have, do, and be in the future? Well, that's really interesting. Yesterday, I met a number of prospects, and one of them, I really feel disappointed in myself because... I know what he wants to do, and he's got lots of ambition, he's got drive, he wants to create an entity that runs without him needing to be there. But where I couldn't seem to bridge the gap between him wanting to achieve what he wanted and do what was necessary in between to make it happen. And I'm really curious, because I'd love to help this guy, because he's got masses of passion and drive. but How do you bridge that gap when actually the planning process, the design process is really difficult and time consuming? And someone is playing both fire chief and head arsonist. They're wandering around putting out fires and then lighting them again with a box of matches in their pocket. Because that's what I sensed he was doing. How do you get past that in terms of the conversation? What are the questions you should be asking? Well, you know, I think the key thing is, do they really want to get past it? Are they, maybe this is a blind spot that we don't have on our list of blind spots, 
he didn't realize he was the arsonist. And I think once you get that self-awareness that, hey, I'm the one lighting the matches here so that I can feel important and busy and needed in my company, when really working on your company for the long term is what most business leaders really need to be doing. So he needs to focus some time on a regular basis to where he can put all the fires aside, all the matches aside, and say, okay, let me work on my business. Let me get out of the day-to-day firefighting. He's spending a quarter of his time on planning. So it's not that he's not got the time. Ah, okay. Is he planning the right things? That's what I was trying to get to, and that's where he was being exceptionally vague. I would walk him through the planning steps. Do you mind if I sort of walk through those? Oh, there's 10 of them. I'll just sort of walk through them, and then we can chat about the ones that you feel may be that he's missing or maybe that would be a little more helpful. Well, obviously, develop your personal vision. Then step two would be to build your organizational vision around yours, create your mission and values for your company. Then here's what a lot of people forget, the analysis of your external environment. What's going on around you in your world? And of course, you know, in the UK right now, the Brexit thing is a very scary external environment factor that people don't really know what's going to be happening. Once you do that, then let's do a little internal assessment, the old good old-fashioned SWOT assessment, Mm -hmm. right? Strengths, weaknesses, um, opportunities, and threats. And when you do that, now you're going to get a good idea of what your company's facing. So now you have to go back and say, based on what I now know, step five, let's revisit my vision, my organizational vision. Is it still valid based on what I now know? Now, if it is, great. If it's not, then you have to readjust your vision. But however you readjust it still needs to be in congruence with your personal vision. Then step six is, okay, now we have our vision, our mission. What are my key priorities? Okay, what's the key things that will get me to accomplish that vision? Once we understand and establish those, what are the expectations for each priority? What does it really mean? Step seven, let's establish those expectations. Step eight, now we create the action plans, the due dates, the sign responsibility for accomplishing those key priorities. And then step nine is probably the forgotten one, allocate the resources. What kind of time, effort, and money is it going to take to accomplish those action plans? And that's where a lot of people fall down. They don't really assign the budgets and therefore things don't really get done. Step 10 in planning is interesting because this is where you have to establish and adhere to a regular review process of your plan. So to make sure that all the people who are tasked with accomplishing this, you have constant reviews for each of your priorities on a regularly scheduled basis. Well, that makes sense. I mean, steps eight and nine certainly seem to be areas that we didn't really cover in a lot of depth. I think the whole piece around deciding who is going to be delegated responsibility. And the other thing we didn't really touch on is the racy model, which, again, I'd like to touch on later on in the conversation. That's been really helpful. Thank you. What I would like to do is delve a little bit deeper and define and explain the difference between vision and mission. That's pretty simple. Vision is where you see your company three, five, 10 years from now. In 10 years from now, five years from now, my company will be the market leader, will be this, will do that, whatever it is that you want it to be. Okay, that's your vision. My mission is we will be the leader in quality products and services, whatever those are, for whoever your customers are, so that my customers can achieve what's important to them. That's a mission. So the mission is what you're going to do right now for who and how it's going to help them. Got it. Well, that's really helpful. Once you've done the planning, and I'm guessing this is a process that can take weeks to go through if you're going to do it really effectively, then the next step is positions. So talk us through what is involved in the positions step. Positions basically has three steps. Now, we've done our planning, and when we assign responsibility in those initial planning stages, 
we are assigning the responsibility to a function, to a function in our organization, right? So if one of our priorities is to hire better people, well, that would fall under a HR function, if you will, not necessarily a person's name. So step 11 is where you determine the structure you need to implement your plan. Don't get hung up on the structure you have now. Be forward thinking. If I'm to achieve my plan of becoming this, my corporate vision, what are the key functions that I'm going to need? What's my org chart going to look like three to five years down the road? And this is what I think Dave Matson, our, our CEO, did. He looked at where we were and said, you know, this is where I want to be. What functions am I going to need that I don't have now? And he had two or three of them that he had absolutely needed to achieve his vision. So once you create that new org chart, you have to then, step 12, identify the skill sets, attributes needed in each of those functions and positions. Now, we're not we're doing this without anybody, no people, no emotional connection to your current employees, right? It's all big picture. What's the function? What's needed in that function? What skill set? You get crystal clear on that. Then you can actually create and update a job description for each position. And you do this with your key functions and then the next level functions under each key function, so on, whatever the size of your organization is. You're very flat organization. There's only a couple levels down. If you're a very deep organization, don't think the business leader has to do this all alone. Obviously, he would be having other people that would be doing the next level stuff down for him. Well, this then raises another question, which is in family businesses, how does one navigate the difficulty of maybe having the father or the brother-in-law or the daughter who may or may not be? the right person for the job. And have you any experience of dealing with that particular bombshell? Oddly enough, you had mentioned that, Marcus. In my previous life, <laughs> um, my father and I were in business together and we had uh, some other family members involved. And at one point I had to end up firing one of my sisters. That must have and, been an interesting Thanksgiving. Yeah, it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't pleasant. But what we hadn't done is we really hadn't determined the needed positions. Right. And we really hadn't determined the qualifications. And what happened was we created a position and put her in, and it was our fault. Really, it wasn't her fault because she didn't really have the skill set that was required because we didn't really analyze it properly. So in hindsight, I'm taking the responsibility for that. Never should have happened. Unfortunately, it did. Did you ask for forgiveness? Many years later. <laughs> this is particularly apposite for us because as we're going through this process ourselves, because we're scaling up at the moment very aggressively and we're looking at the legacy that we're trying to leave behind for our daughters. And we've had the conversation following the training with our daughters about whether they'd like to be part of the business. And so far, two of them have said yes and trying to find a fit and help them make the right choices in order to pursue that without biasing them is proving to be an interesting challenge. So I'll report back on this in a couple of years because both of them will probably be in the business by then. Then I can tell you whether or not I've been fired. Yeah, but, but this goes back, this really goes back, Marcus, to that personal vision questionnaire in which we're asking you, hey, do any family members, are they going to be involved? Because that does affect your vision. That does affect what's going to happen. And if that's the case, well, are they going to be qualified? And if not now, how do you get them qualified? Does your positions, are they going to have a fit somewhere in that org chart for that person to come in and do what they need to do? Absolutely. And I can feel myself requiring a sniffer dog to pick up the minefield. You and Suzanne are, are working together. My wife and I in Sandler, when I first was a local training center, we worked together. And uh, I mean, she fired me probably five times. I fired her probably four before it all worked out. <laughs> I have a tendency not to be very detail orientated. Suzanne gets me to sign bits of paper. And one day I discovered that she was chief executive and I wasn't. 
So, yeah, um, sneaky, but clearly it's worked because we're not bankrupt because if I was in charge, I suspect we would have been. The next P is people. Talk us through that. Okay, well, people comes after positions because now that we know the structure where we want, the functions that we want to have, so now we have to talk about the people. So step 14, right, is assess your current employees to determine who fits the roles and functions you've identified. As you look at that, what are the roles and functions that you've identified? And in a restructuring of my father and I's company many, many years ago, before my Sandler experience, we had over about 80 employees. And we had our vision had changed uh, because some key things had changed. Uh, The external environment had changed. And we had to get down to 30-some employees. Wow. We had each function. So I had the task of looking at each of the current employees to determine who was going to fit best in each of the functions that we now needed to operate in the way we needed to operate. One of the toughest things I ever did. I bet that must have been uncomfortable. I seem to remember you had a situation once where you had to let someone go, went into a tribunal, and you were met by the husband who was wielding a gun. I would say only in America, but um, who knows? I'm not going to get into the conversation around gun laws, but I have to say, you know, if people have them, they use them. But anyway, let's park that. Are we done on people? No, no, because we have three more steps. Okay. So let's assume that some of the people do fit, some don't fit. Some will fit with some more training or guidance, perhaps. Now you have maybe, and I'll pick on Dave Matson. so he had this function, and there was nobody in our organization that could fit that function. So step 15 is determine the new employees needed and recruit. So he had to go out and recruit some highly knowledgeable, high skill set people to do some of the things that he needed done. One of the things that I see that holds businesses back is recruitment when people are reactive. At what point in the process is building a bench and making recruitment part of the day-to-day functional activity, habituated behavior of everyone in management to make sure that they have four or five people lined up for any key position. So if someone leaves, they can replace them quickly and with a high-caliber candidate. Well, what's interesting is one of the blind spots is not being in recruiting mode. You always, as a leader, must have your antenna up for the type of people who are going to fit culturally the kind of business that you want. And when you have that antenna up and you run across those people, you need to, like you say, you need to create that people bank. You know, Marcus, it's really good getting to know you. In the future, if I ever have a job opening or something, would you be okay if I gave you a call to see if you'd be interested in it? And so when, yeah, when I do that and you say, well, yeah, that's great. You may not hear from me for two years, but I've written a note about what I What impressed me about you, why I thought you might be a fit, and then I've got it in my little people bank folder so that when something does happen, I've automatically got four or five people I can go to initially that I've already met, and there's something that said you might be the kind of person that would fit. Well, this is really interesting. I've been training people banking now for about 10 years with my clients, and the ones who've actually heeded the advice instead of taking 12, 16 weeks, six months, a year to fill a vacancy, it literally takes one month notice period to fill the vacancy. Now, from a sales perspective, if someone's on a 1.2 million pound target, instead of losing 300, 600, 800,000 pounds of their revenue, within one month, they are already up to speed. And the piece that goes immediately with that is the 120-day onboarding process. It's such a critical part of being able to grow and scale because in that 120 days, a new employee is putting the company, the manager, and the job on probation. Is this the job I was sold? Do I like my boss or is he an oath? Do I like the people? Is this something I can do? Am I better off somewhere else? Well, you've mentioned the process and onboarding process, and I want to get to that because the next P is process. But before I get there and speak a little more on that, let me talk about the two key steps in people that are the most neglected and that what the excellent companies feel are absolutely vital. Step 16, establish a training and development budget, period. 
how much money are you going to invest every single year in your people? Pick that number, whatever that number is that you feel that you're comfortable investing. What is it? Set it aside. And companies that are really excellent, if you don't spend that money, that's considered a black mark. That's considered something to talk about, that that's an issue, because that means you're not developing your people. Because step 17 is to create an individual development plan for each employee from the lowest level to the highest level, including yourself leadership. So how much am I going to spend? Here's the plan for each people. So each person needs this, needs that. Now you might need to adjust your budget to accomplish it, but over time that will tell. Again, this is really interesting. I mean, I can cite dozens of examples, but every time a manager is deeply involved and they see coaching as a critical function. I mean, you know, I always teach my managers that they have two functions on their job description hire the best people, and get the best out of them. And those that implement a cadence of coaching and accountability and are constantly developing their people are insisting they go on training. In fact, yesterday I interviewed Antonio Garrido for the podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, That'll be coming out either today or tomorrow. And what was really interesting was when he took a job covering Europe, Middle East, Africa, and Asia Pacific, the first thing his... CEO said to him is, you're going on this training over in Texas, sales training. And he said, well, I don't need it. In that case, you haven't got the job. And it turned out that he ended up getting trained by Tom Neeson, which was clearly a career-boosting move. But what it meant was that they had a culture that from the top, the message was really clear. You either train and develop or you're out. And I think that's a really important part of the culture, that unless you have a belief that training is an essential component of every role and everybody is responsible for their own development and every manager is responsible for helping develop their people, I think that's where companies start to crumble. And here's what's interesting, Marcus, is not only is it training and development within the job set and skills, but the excellent companies, they want to develop their people as fully as they can. And they're not worried about, oh, gee, if I develop them, and they go on to a different career, that so be it then. As long as they're working for me and I'm helping them become better people, helping them achieve what they want, it's only going to help my organization. And so you can't have the mindset, if I train them, they're going to leave me. Well, that scarcity mindset you see a lot in Northern European, Anglo-Saxon type of countries. I used to be a headhunter and I did a lot of work in Scandinavia. And what I discovered And it was quite by accident. I was just being very cheeky. And I phoned up the manager of a team where I knew they had people. I didn't mean to speak to him, but I pitched him on this job. And I think it was with Intel, interestingly enough. And he said, you know, there are a couple of people in my team who I think would be absolutely perfect for this. And he actually referred me to people in his team. Now, That really shocked me. But what I found was that it was a pattern within that organization and several others in Scandinavia because they didn't have that scarcity mentality. They genuinely believed that it was in their interest to look after their people, even if it wasn't in their short-term interest. And what was fascinating was the level of loyalty their people had. And it was so difficult to move people out. I did move a couple, but they had no problem recruiting. In fact, the people who left recommended great people to replace them. Really fascinating dynamic. But you see that culture, what happens in a culture that that says, I want to develop people to their full potential as best I can to help them grow and develop is not counterproductive to the business growth and development. There was certainly a trend years ago, or fairly recently, of this uh, Google 20% time, where people could put 20% of their time into a special project, and it didn't have to be work-related. Now, off the back of that, we got Gmail, we got Google Maps, and we got a load of other stuff. But people would be spending time on charitable causes and so forth. Again, moving people out of Google is quite tough. Obviously, it's a pretty sexy company, and they've got the best toys to play with. But culturally, it's certainly been a place where people want to go to work. And I think one of the really important factors is about creating employee engagement. 
Because if you look after your people, they'll look after your customers. Let's, let's take it one step. When you, when you help your people achieve their vision for their life, and they realize that you are helping them within the job, not only by accomplishing their job and doing it well, but by having the time to invest in family, to invest in those other causes, you get that loyalty. You, why would they want to change? Well, again, I'd like to just make this point, which is when we look back at the issue of intrinsic motivation and value and a sense of empowerment, I think that it's really important that in the interview and selection process, managers uncover the personal motivation, the personal vision, because you cannot tie personal goals and objectives to corporate goals and objectives unless you have that conversation. But certainly in the UK, Managers are awful at asking that kind of information. I mean, one of my favorite and easiest ways to discover pain when I'm meeting the owner of a business is asking the presumptive question. So, Dave, when you sat down with your underperforming employee at the interview process and asked why she comes to work and what her purpose is and who she's doing it for, what did that conversation sound like? Which point the jaw hits the floor. And there's this slightly dull moment. And they say, well, I've never had that conversation. So when do you expect to have that conversation? Well, I don't like to get, per- you know, don't like to get into their personal lives. Well, I don't think you can separate Dave Hyatt, the human being, from Dave Hyatt, the person in the job. And it's a huge mistake that so many organizations are guilty of performing. And it seems to be repeated. So what can one do? in order to get people to realize that it's an act of idiocy and self-sabotage so early on in this planning process? Well, I think being crystal clear on the corporate vision goals, your vision and goals, and then having your managers, your people in leadership positions, making sure they do ask those tough questions. And that's just a matter of training and development, training your managers. Because one of the blind spots is people tend not to train managers on some of the tough stuff. And I think if we really have that developmental mindset to get us where we want to go, and you train your people to ask those kinds of questions, and why it's important to tie that individual's goals and dreams so that they realize by accomplishing their work, not only will the the company reach their vision, but they'll have a much better chance of reaching their vision, their personal goals and dreams. So it's just a matter of training, I think. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm working with one manager at the moment who took over an underperforming team about eight or nine months ago, and he's completely transformed it. And he's done that through coaching, training, developing, mentoring, planning, but also through profiling and identifying people who have an aptitude and then creating personal development and career pathing plans and developing those people in those areas. He started training and developing them eight months ago so that when the restructure came, then he was in a position to move them into the new role. And it's just so gratifying to see because it makes such a difference. The difference between his division and all the other managers' divisions is so marked. Now what we're doing is we're starting to spread into those other areas and following on the same process and building in the same culture. But again, what's really interesting is he's ended up taking over the sales for this entire operation. So eight months ago, he came in as a sales manager and running a 30 million pound division. Now he's running a 300 million pound division. And that the speed with which his career has advanced, but now he's taking his people along with him. I get a little shiver up my spine every time I think about it. And I'm doing this with another manager at the moment. I know what's coming. Trying to not rush it because I'm so excited about where it's headed. But Marcus, isn't really that part of what is our intrinsic motivation? Mm. When we know that we can help people do that to achieve their vision, not just improve their company bottom lines, but to actually accomplish and develop and get what they want out of life. Isn't that what gives you that little tingle in the spine? It sure does me. Do you know what it's doing? It's wrecking my sleep pattern because I wake up about 3.30 every morning and it takes me another 45 minutes to go back to sleep for another half hour because I think if I leave at half past three in the morning to come to work, 
I'm going to end up getting divorced. So it's amazing the level of motivation that I have to come to work. I cannot wait for Monday mornings. I love my weekends, but Monday morning cannot come around fast enough because it's a thrill every single day. It's amazing. Well, you know, that's going to take us to, I think, getting back to the piece. We have the people in place. And think of that motivation you have. When you have people like that, the next P processes become simple because good people, motivated people will help build excellent processes and improve mediocre processes. That's why you get the people on board first. Then we worry about process. And process really only has one step, Marcus. It's pretty simple. Create, evaluate, and simplify all your processes. Create a process, a written, documented process where you can just reach up on the shelf, onboard a new employee. Here's your onboarding process. Now, naturally, in the program, we have tools that help you do that, but you have to have that process. Process for this, process for that. When it comes to manufacturing, everyone understands process. But when it comes to the soft stuff within the organization, accounting, manufacturing, process is process, it's a given. But with that other stuff, it's not. But it still has to be processed. Again, this is really interesting. I interviewed Mike Michalowicz, the author of Profit First and Clockwork. And one of the things he suggests, which again, I'm recommending to all of my clients, is that when you create a process, what you do is you have the person who does the process, evaluate it, and then simplify it. And then you video them literally just off the back of your smartphone And they video that process because then if they get hit by a bus or they're sick or they're away on holiday, then someone else can step in. And the other really important piece about the process is that you need to index it, make it easy to find. So you use this as part of your onboarding manual. From a sales perspective, you can ramp someone up in a matter of days or weeks instead of months. And that can make you a fortune just by documenting the process and making sure that you have a proper onboarding process. What do they need to know? By when do they need to know it? And where can they find it? And how easy is it to find it? Then you can ramp up. Instead of taking four months to ramp up a new salesperson, you can do it in two weeks. That's another three and a half, 350,000 pounds of revenue potential. It takes the time and effort to put that stuff in place up front but it pays dividends and it pays dividends year after year after year. So I cannot stress for anyone who's listening how crucial it is to have good process and then constantly evaluate it and then simplify it and document it and video it. We actually recommend that one person in an organization be in charge of process. Great idea. So that they are constantly reviewing process with the appropriate people that are engaged in the process. So there's that constant improvement. As you know, within a year, things change. Yeah. And what we did a year ago, it's a whole new process now because the technology that we use changed because of this, because of that. So those processes can't be cast in stone. We did it four years ago, haven't looked at it since. And actually, you come to find out the people doing it haven't been using that process in the last three years. They've added to it, deleted from it. So it needs to be a constant, constant monitoring. Absolutely. It's a virtuous circle. The next step is what we call perform metrics. So performance metrics. Talk us through that. Well, first of all, people, it's hard to pronounce perform metrics, but it really is taking what are the performance metrics of each position. Step 19, establish individual metrics for each and every employee because every employee in your organization has a metric that they can be held accountable to. And you were talking about people want to be empowered. One of the best ways to empower people is to hold them accountable. People want to be accountable. They good feel that if they... Accountable. Good people want to... Exactly. Good people want to be held accountable. They want to know what's expected of them so they can deliver it. And that empowers them at whatever level of the organization it takes. One of my jobs when I was at university was a janitor cleaning up the trash after the business closed down, right? And I had metrics that I had to achieve on each shift. I had to achieve a certain level of 
number of offices, number of floors that I had to cover. And I had this very specific task of what I had to do. And if those didn't get done in that particular time, I had to then be accountable for why it didn't get done. Well, I got to tell you, I wanted to make sure it got done because I didn't want to have to be accountable for it not getting done. So let me ask you this, because in Bill Bartlett's outstanding book, The Sales Coach's Playbook, he uh, talks about how one coaches people. And when you're doing developing goals and the metrics against which someone is going to be measured, that they need to be involved in designing and defining what those are and identifying what the consequences are. So how do we make sure that they're intrinsically valuable and that they feel totally in control and so they take ownership of their particular areas of accountability? Within step 19, establish individual metrics, part of that is to actually create a perform metrics agreement where you sit down with each position, each person in that position, and you've already identified the, their skills and what that job does, and that you go through it which, and identify the things they're going to be measured on, but it has to be the things that, that they have control of. Absolutely. Something that they don't have control of, they, you can't measure them on it. But what do they have control of? Then we agree on what that metric is. And we actually have a little tool that's a perform metrics agreement, sort of walks you through how to do that, and then you can sign off on it. This is really interesting. A few years ago, a client came to me who I'd been coaching for about a year, and he was going for another job. And the measurements that he was going to be held accountable for, every one of them was out of his control. So we spent three or four hours looking at what the proposition was and rejigging the performance metrics. And as a result of that, he made an extra £300,000 in income, but they got the result that they wanted. So it was cheap. But if he'd agreed to the original proposition, because he really wanted the job, but if he'd agreed to that original proposition, he'd have been out within a year. Then we move on to passion. Well, hang on, hang on. I've got some more steps here in perform metrics. It's not one and done here. Part of the things of perform metrics is you sort of have to conduct an appraisal of your performance, conduct regular performance evaluations and appraisals with each employee. Okay. And that's going to help you hold them accountable. But then step 21 is conduct employee surveys anonymously, usually through a third party is best so that they can assess how well you're doing as a leader and then be ready to act upon suggestions of things that they think might need improved or the things that make sense to improve. Step 22, you've got to create the tracking reports that you need to maintain control of your department, division, or organization. So again, that piece about acting on suggestions is really important. The number of times I've been to hotels where they've given me the customer satisfaction survey and there's no communication back. So I've gone back to the hotel and something wasn't quite right. Then I haven't seen any change. So it feels like they're going through the motions and it's a box ticking exercise rather than really taking feedback and using it meaningfully. So again, I can't stress enough. If you are going to take feedback, then you have to be vulnerable enough, A, to ask for it, and then courageous enough to implement it. And you have to have the humility to admit that you aren't the be-all and end-all. And one of the things that's really struck me is that the best managers are not necessarily the best technicians or functionaries in the role. So what I've very often seen, obviously 32 years in sales, is that often the best salesperson gets promoted to management. You lose a good salesperson and gain an atrocious manager. So the best managers I ever had were ones who made me feel like my opinion mattered. They acted upon my suggestions. And the level of loyalty that created, even though I may not have been paid particularly well, because I remember my first job at university was working as the executive assistant to the Australian consul in Manchester when Manchester was bidding for the 2012 Olympics, and it was up against Sydney. And on day one, my boss said to me, come up with some ideas to raise revenue or cut costs. And I came up with 18. She implemented 17 of them. 
And then I discovered office politics, which is another story, because most of the people had been there for 36 years and had never made a suggestion. But my loyalty to her, I stayed through thick and thin, despite the fact I hated the job. And in fact, two years after I left, they were still figuring out my filing system. So I don't think I was a particularly good hire. But my loyalty to Anne still to this day remains. She was a fantastic boss because she actually listened and she cared. And that makes a huge difference. Yeah, it really does. It really does. Now, this step 23, we're almost, almost to the last step, but step 23, this is a leadership step, right? Make sure that you have an advisory group, a board of directors. doesn't have to be as formal as a board. But what's your advisory group of people that you're not paying for their advice? These are business leaders that can bring something to the table that you need to achieve your vision. So monitor that group, monitor their performance, and get feedback from them on how you're doing as a leader. So is this something like joining a mastermind group, something like Vistage, Bigger, Better, Brighter? Nope. Those are all nice individual things, and those are more best practices, peer stuff. This is a true business advisory group where you're sitting down on a regular basis with these individuals. So you ask this woman, what do you think of our ability to, here's what I'm thinking of doing, what's your input in it? It's not that throw it in the room, see what other people think. This is people concentrate on just your business. So are these people whose history is your future? So they've lived that particular area before? Ideally. So if you, if you haven't done the planning step and the vision, and you don't know where you're going, who do you need on your board of advisors? Right. Right. If I know where I want to go and I know that I have to have an online presence, but I'm an idiot for that, then I want one of my advisors to be someone who's knowledgeable and has experience in that arena. Gotcha. So they can advise and tell me when I'm off base, what's going on with it. Does that make sense? Understood. And presumably, as you evolve, that business advisory group, the individuals within it may change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one thing I do say on advisory groups, don't be afraid to hold yourself out there as an advisor for others. Ah, good point. If you're not willing to do it, you can't expect others to do it. Okay. So can we move on to passion now? Because I, I don't want to jump ahead. Absolutely. Passion. Passion is going to bring us full circle, Marcus, back to those intrinsic motivations that you talk about. Excellent organizations, leaders are passionate. They are passionate about their personal visions. They're passionate about using the company to achieve that through the company vision and mission. They have that internal, intrinsic sense of, I mean, they really want to make this happen. And so we come to step 24, which is to accelerate. Now, accelerate means basically to have the passion to stick with it, okay? The six Ps of organizational excellence is an ongoing process. When you go through it the first time, it is a nightmare. It is a chore. It, is, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of commitment. It takes total commitment to get through those 24 steps. However, once you get through them, that passion will accelerate the next round of going through the six Ps and the, and the steps. So as you go through it each time, it gets easier and the nuances get finer. Your baselines become more reliable. It's just passion is what's going to accelerate the whole process of creating an excellent organization. So once you've done this two, three times, when do you stop? What's your vision say? When are you retiring? Because here's what happens. It all starts with blind spots. Oh, gee, I didn't realize we had that issue or problem. How do we fix it? Well, we have this whole 6P process. What happens is the blind spot that you noticed today. So if I turn my head to look at this blind spot over here, what's occurring behind me? It could be another different blind spot. So you will always have blind spots. Now, they'll change. They'll nuance, but what, just when you think you've got something fixed, boom, you turn back around to realize, oh, that process is now a kilter. It's not working. So it's a constant, ongoing process. It's easier every time you do it, but excellent organizations never stop doing it. That, again, has to be one of the key takeaways. 
this is an ongoing, never-ending process. You stop when you sold the business, and then you start it again with the next one. That's exactly correct. Okay. So I have a particular passion around channels. And what I'd like to do is just very briefly, maybe five minutes conversation to sow the seed, because I'd love to have you back to talk through this whole process again about implementing the six Ps and the organizational excellence within the channel. What we're seeing at the moment is in the last 18 months, there has been more change in the channel than in the previous 30 years. Increasingly, there are acquisitions, there are mergers, there's consolidation, there's a bifurcation within the channel. You're starting to develop shadow channels and lots of different factors are starting to pile in from outside. Increasingly, as certainly technology companies have moved away from the perpetual license model to the cloud, they haven't really made that transition. And this is the point I'd like to really explore. In terms of bringing in organizational excellence to an organization that is transitioning from one successful culture to another, so they don't end up falling into the Polaroid, the blockbuster trap of not being able to let go of what made them successful. How do you use organizational excellence as a process in order to attack yourself and to sacrifice what made you successful to become successful in the future? Well, you know, I think, I think it's the whole process. I mean, obviously, the planning, the vision, as that vision changes, and as the environment, external environment changes. But what's interesting, what we've included in the, in the OE package, if you will, when it comes to passion, dealing with change, managing change appropriately. We have a whole little module in there on making sure leaders know the pitfalls of change when they're doing this and things to look out for, what to watch out for. But if you take that whole process of, that we just talked about of OE and you realize that your channel partners are changing, the way that it's happening is changing. Your external environment says, hey, this is the trend. This is the model. Well, then what must change? Well, then my vision for the company and my mission probably are going to be altered in a way. And as I alter that and change my company, how am I going to manage? What's my process for managing the change that we're going to be going through? So a great example of this is Nokia, the phone manufacturer. Because when smartphones were coming in, the middle management was screaming to senior management, we have to come on board with this. But they couldn't let go. And the challenge here, I suspect this is a subject of many a discussion that you and I will have, is how do you implement this kind of change where the senior management is resisting? Who needs to be the catalyst? in order to be able to create this 6P process when you could, they can't let go. You know, there are big software vendors out there who have built multi-billion dollar businesses off the back of what made them successful in this transition to the cloud. You've got the likes of Uber coming along and decimating marketplaces, Amazon decimating marketplaces because the big player couldn't transition. So I'm just really curious, how do you get that catalysis to make sure the organization moves? Is it the shareholders that have to drive that? Do you have to do wholesale change within the senior management? It all starts at the top. It really does. If the top leadership is not open to what the market is doing and they've got their head in the sand, there's nothing that the people below who see the trend and want to make the change can do because that's not the corporate culture. So from a leadership point of view, if that leader is not open to understanding what's changing and to making the internal adjustments and changes, they're going to be left behind. Well, this is really interesting because the opportunity that I see is for scale-ups in the mid-market to annihilate, don't do the David and Goliath Act because I think the challenge in those large organizations is they're like um, super tankers and they take you know, half an hour to turn. And the mid-market scale-ups are the ones who are in the speedboats. They're the pirates that are able to get on board. They're very maneuverable. 
And I think the opportunity here is twofold. It's for hyper-ambitious owners of scale-up businesses and also organizations that understand that they don't have to have a direct sales force that they can sell through the channel. In 2018, 75% of all products were sold through partners. It's not a trend, it's a wave. There's nothing that you can do about it. And that's across all 26 vertical markets. 90% of technology will be sold through the channel. And increasingly what you're seeing, my wife is going through a process of hell at the moment, trying to transition from the accountancy package that she has with one of the big global vendors. And we have to go, the tax has now gone digital and they have to make this transition. But the big vendors are making it really difficult and very expensive and because they're hanging on to their old model. And they've taken a load of functionality out of what she already had. And you can only get that in the massively expensive, highly upgraded version that offers this one thing. So instead of spending £30, she now has to spend something like seven or £800 in order to make this transition. And I think the smarter scale-up opportunities, scale-up businesses will see the larger, older, established organizations unable to move, and that's where they will capitalize. So I see organizational excellence as a distinct opportunity for gaining competitive advantage in that mid-market. And I put money on it. In the next 10 years of the Fortune 500, I reckon the top 100 or so will change dramatically because they will not have been able to transition. Just look how much of that top 500 have changed over the last five to 10 years. The Insula, the industrials, traditional manufacturing have dropped out. The IT and those have, have taken their place. And why would that not continue? Yeah. When we have our head in the sand, we're not open to change. I don't care how much you tell about OE, they won't do it. Well, they don't really need to make the change. Yeah. Woodrow Wilson once said, if you want to make enemies, recommend change. <laughs> yep. I think in virtually every organization, your five biggest competitors are fear, apathy, ignorance, ego, and denial. And ego and denial are definitely the most dangerous. Apathy, there's nothing you can do, just get rid of the people. Ignorance is the least worrying because that's the, just they don't know. And fear is paralyzing. But I think where people have the courage to make the change, then they can really make a huge difference. So I'm very excited by this program and I'm building it into all of my clients because I don't believe we should ever sell product. I think we should solve their problems. And I think this is a fantastic springboard for us to be able to help them in every part of their business. I would tend to agree. If you're doing this OE as an ongoing process, you'll figure out that, gee, I need help in HR. I need help in this. I need help in that. Now, some of that we as Sandler people will do, but a lot of that, you can have third parties do that. You don't have to always be having an in-house expert for all of that. But I'm thinking of some of the smaller yeah. organizations that maybe don't have the wherewithal. Number one, if the leadership is not open, if they get stuck in the, hey, we're doing okay mode, right? right. We're a well-run company. We're doing okay. They're not going to make the changes. And they're, they're the ones that will be left behind because yeah. they haven't accounted for the innovative processes of allowing employees to, yes, do what they need to do, but also to do those surveys, to listen what employees are saying and really evaluating, not just dismissing. I agree. One of the lessons that I always teach my clients is systems set you free. The more you systematize, the more creative freedom you have within the system. For the first 17 years of my career, I fought and pushed back against systems and process because I thought it limited my creative juices. But actually, using the Sandler submarine as a system, I have all the creative flexibility that I could possibly want as long as I stick within the guide rails. And it's learning to color within the lines, but also to know when to break the rules and to challenge ourselves. And I think this whole process is about growth. It's about never accepting the status quo. And I'm so delighted we have this opportunity to speak, Dave. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Just remember, it's a template to follow. 
and everyone who follows it will actually do it a little bit differently. Absolutely. Brilliant. Dave Hyatt, thank you so much. This is Marcus Kauke from Sander Training, the Inquisitor podcast, signing off. If you'd like to find out more about organizational excellence, then please get in touch with me at m-c-a-u-c-h-i at sandler.com and connect with me on LinkedIn. Feel free to call me. And if you'd like to come along to one of my masterclasses on management and organizational excellence, give me a call on 07-515-937-221. I look forward to speaking to you soon. Bye-bye.